Well, if you have your Bible today, and I hope you do, would you take it and turn to Genesis chapter 3? Genesis chapter 3 is where we're going to end up in a few minutes. But first, I'd like to share with you a list. It's probably, you've probably heard maybe this list or a list like this, and, and, and maybe you've even taken the occasion over the years to create a list like this of your own. The, the list I'm going to read to you is called Everything I Need to Know I Learned from My Mom. Everything I need to know I learned from my mom. So for example, my mother taught me foresight when she said to me, make sure you wear clean underwear in case you're in an accident. Or she taught me logic when she said, if you fall out of that tree and break your neck, don't you come crying to me. She taught me spiritual disciplines when she said, you better pray the stain comes out of that carpet. She taught me genetics. You are just like your father, she used to say. She taught me the science of osmosis when she'd say, shut your mouth and eat your dinner. Or uh, she taught me uh, contortion, you know, when she'd come over and she'd look at the back of my neck and she'd say, just look at the dirt on the back of your neck. Like, how is that? I don't know. <laughs> she taught me the circle of life. Now, moms, be honest. If you haven't said it, you probably thought it. I brought you into this world and I can take you out of it. Mm -hmm. She taught me to appreciate a job well done. Uh, she used to say to me and my brothers all the time, if you're going to kill each other, take it outside. I just cleaned that carpet. Mm -hmm. She taught me how to reason when she, when she would say, because I said so. That's why. She taught me irony. Keep crying and I'll give you something to cry about. She, she taught me stamina. You're going to sit there until all of your veggies are gone. It's amazing I'm not still sitting there. She taught me hypocrisy. If I've told you once, I've told you a million times. Don't exaggerate. She taught me envy. She would say there's millions of less fortunate children in this world who don't have the wonderful parents that you do. I'll try to figure, let you figure out who was envying there. She taught me anticipation. You just wait till your father gets home. She taught me medical science. If you don't stop crossing your eyes, they're going to stay like that forever. She taught me about my roots. Shut that door behind you. Do you think you were born in a barn? She taught me wisdom. When you get to be my age, you'll understand. And she taught me justice. One day you're going to have kids, and I pray they're just like you. Well, you could probably add some of your own basic life lessons that your mother taught you. And actually, we'd love to hear those. Uh, if you'd like to in the comment section, wherever you're at on Facebook or on Zoom, if, if you'd like to type some of those in, we'd all uh, enjoy the opportunity to hear them. And we may even come back and visit them later during the Q&A. But we all have this sense that our mother, in word and in deed, taught us some fundamental lessons. This is part of what mothers do. When she's rocking us to sleep in the middle of the night or when she's nursing us in the middle of the night, she's teaching us valuable life lessons, even if only through example. As we grow and mature and become children who are learning about our own bodies and our own boundaries, there is mom teaching us and helping us to learn and, and to grow, to understand the, the basic things of life that we need to know as children. 
when we become a teenager and, and uh, either proverbially or, or literally turn our back on mom, thinking, what can she have to teach me? She's so out of touch. Mom continues to teach us by word and by deed. And then when we become parents ourselves, striving to teach our own children, there sits mom, patiently teaching us the lessons that we need to learn. And some of us have gotten to the stage in life where we understand that even though our mother's gone, still our memories of her and the things that she taught us in word and in actions, the examples she lived out before us, they continue to teach us and give us a, uh, an example to emulate, to strive to live out. The things that mom teaches us through life are some of the most foundational things that we need to know in order to live an effective life, in order to live a life worth living. They're, they're the kind of lessons that the author of Hebrews mentioned in our passage last week. You may remember in Hebrews 6, 1, the author says, therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings and be taken forward to maturity. It's these elementary teachings that moms are good at teaching us throughout life, the basic foundations of, of how to live and how to walk. Well, when the author of Hebrews talks about it, he's talking about spiritual growth and spiritual maturity. And then, and then after six, chapter 6, verse 1 in Hebrews, he, he lists six elementary or foundational truths of the Christian faith that all Christians need to understand and need to live in in order to keep growing into maturity. The first item in that list in Hebrews chapter 6 is repentance from acts that lead to death. And so what we want to do today is we want to start marching through these fundamentals of the Christian faith to make sure that we understand what that's about, to understand how we're supposed to live. So we're going to look today at the first one in this list repentance from acts that lead to death. I see two things here that we need to explore today. First of all, there's, there's uh, the question, what, are, what does he mean by acts that lead to death? And then the second question is, what is repentance? How do we, how do we repent from these acts, repent of these acts or from these acts that lead to death? So to understand the first thing, the, the acts that lead to death, we need to go all the way back to the beginning. Well, actually, just a couple steps past the beginning. We're going to Genesis chapter 3. You may remember that in Genesis 1 and 2, we have the story of how God created everything that is. And you'll remember as he created it, God looked at what he created and he said, oh, that's good. That's so good. That is very good. And as we turn the page from Genesis 2 to Genesis 3, we see how this creation that God had put together, this creation that he called very good, became what it is today, something that clearly is not very good, that's marked by global pandemics and, and conspiracy theorists and, and murder hornets and, 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 and men whose hearts are filled with hate gunning down unarmed men in the streets. In Genesis 3, we see how this world came to be filled with death and destruction. We're going we're gonna to see what it is that, uh, that produces acts that lead to death. 
And so we're going to read in Genesis chapter 3, as you, if you haven't already found it, as you find it, let me just remind you again of the specific scene that we turn the page into uh, to read in Genesis 3. In Genesis 2, God has created a garden, a picturesque, perfect place, and he's placed the first two humans, Adam and Eve, in that garden. Their role, their, their job is to tend the garden, to care for it, to nurture life, to, uh, to enjoy the creation that God has given them. God has given them anything they want to eat. Of all the trees in the garden, they can eat any of the fruit. There's and get on a video today of the garden. The, the only the garden. audio. And the tree of the knowledge of and again, they're welcome to eat from any of the fruit of any of the trees except one tree. You're going to watch the what? tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God said that's off limits to you. You may not even touch the fruit of that tree. Well, that brings us up to Genesis chapter 3. If you want to follow along as I read, starting in verse 1. Okay. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman... Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. If you have a pen or a pencil, will you underline those five words? You will be like God. Verse five, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. So we, here we have just a few short verses of how everything that was created perfect and very good came to be what it is now, filled with destruction and death. And it all seems to hinge around a man and a woman touching and eating a piece of fruit off of a tree. Of course, we understand it's not the act of eating the fruit that causes problems. If that were the problems, we'd just eat fruit no more. Clearly, there's something else going on here that introduces into the world the death and destruction and the things that we now live with. I would suggest to you, and we're going to see today, that that we're left with all of this death and all of the destruction that we live with in this world today because instead of turning their back on three specific temptations, Adam and Eve raised their eyebrows and leaned into those temptations. You see, every act of death springs from the three temptations that we're going to look at, look at today. So let's look at those. Let's notice the three temptations here in Genesis chapter 3. First, the first temptation with which they're encountered is the lust of the flesh. The lust of the flesh. Let's define that. The lust of the flesh is the desire to feel physical pleasure from anything that is contrary to the will of God. It's the desire to receive physical satisfaction, 
physical pleasure, physical enjoyment from anything that's contrary outside of the will of God. We see this expressed in in verse 6, which we just read. It said that, that the woman realized that the fruit of the tree was good for food. So she looked at it and she said, oh yeah, that looks good. I mean, I don't know, I don't know what she thought. We often think maybe in terms of an apple, it probably wasn't an apple, not really the point, but she looked at it and, and you know, it probably glistened and it had just the right amount of condensation on it. And, and, uh, and she just had this sense that, wow, that food looks good. Maybe even so much better than all this other food that we can eat. You see, the problem wasn't that the fruit looked good. I mean, God had made it. And you remember, God had said, oh man, this is very good. The problem wasn't that the fruit looked good. The problem wasn't that it looked appetizing. The problem was that it was outside of God's will for Adam and Eve. God had said, no, you're not to touch it. You're not to eat it. This idea of the the lust of the flesh, it's such a a salient principle that in the New Testament, Paul says this in Galatians chapter 5. He says, the acts of the flesh, or we could say the lust of the flesh, the acts that lead to death is another way we could say it. The acts of the flesh are obvious, he says. They're not necessarily hidden and and oops, we stumble upon them. These are things that, especially when the Holy Spirit of God dwells in us, when we're following Jesus, these acts of the flesh are clear. It's, they've got caution tape and flashing lights around them. These are outside of the will of God for the follower of Jesus. And notice he he lists, not all of them, it's not an exhaustive list, but he lists some some, uh, that seem to bubble to the top. He says uh, they're obvious, sexual immorality. There, we can start right there. Notice that, that sex isn't wrong. Scripture makes clear, matter of fact, before the fall, it's clear that uh, that sex between a man and a woman who were married, a man born male and a woman born female, that when they're married in a lifelong committed relationship, sex is part of what God designed that for. It's, it's beautiful in that setting. Sexual immorality, however, is when we remove sex from the context for which God created it and put it in other contexts, and then it becomes an act of the flesh, not because sex is bad, but because the context matters and because God's boundaries are what bears the most weight. He goes on, the acts of the sinful flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. All of these things in the list have this in common. They come from a place that isn't necessarily bad, but then they're twisted, they're distorted, they're set outside of God's will and become something God never intended them to be. Anything, any action that derives physical pleasure or satisfaction from something that is outside of God's will for his children is an act that leads to death. And it starts with this first temptation, the the lust of the flesh. But notice there's another temptation in Genesis chapter 3. It's called the lust of the eyes. Here's how we define the lust of the eyes. It's the desire to take 
as yours, something that your eyes see, even though it's contrary to the will of God. It's a desire to have as yours something that your eyes have seen, even though that thing is contrary to the will of God for your life. Again, we see this in, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. Not only, excuse me, did she see that the fruit of the tree was good for food, but Moses writes it was pleasing to the eye. So again, the problem wasn't that the fruit looked good. Again, that's how God made it. The problem was that they were not to have it. Now, I, I, Scripture doesn't say this, but I would hazard a guess, just based on human experience, that for days, weeks, months, years, I don't know, however long they lived in the garden before Genesis 3, 6 happened, I would guess that Adam and Eve often had opportunity to look on the, the, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And I would guess that they would often look at it, they would often notice how nice it looked, but they would know it was out of bounds. So they would enjoy all the other fruit that God had given them to enjoy. But on this particular day, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eye teamed up against them, and there was a problem. Several years ago, I sensed that God was asking me to uh, set aside my smartphone. And I don't mean set aside in the sense of fasting from it for a week or a month or anything like that. I mean, set aside like I had this distinct impression God wanted me to sell it and be done with it. I didn't really like that word from the Lord. I enjoyed my smartphone. I had a pretty cool phone at the time, and, and it helped me to do some of the functions of my job, and, and I enjoyed some of the fun things I did on it, and, and I, just couldn't, I just couldn't understand why God would ask me that. So I went to some people who I trusted, people who, who knew me and who spoke into my life, and I told them what I thought maybe the Lord was saying, and, and honestly, I went hoping that they would let me off the hook, that they would say, no, you must, no that, that is, just doesn't sound right. But to a person, every one of them said, you know, Earl, I, I think that probably is what God's saying to you in this season. And so I did it. I downgraded to a flip phone. I sold my smartphone on eBay. I changed our phone plan. And I started living a smartphone-less life. Now, some of you, especially perhaps those who are listening on Zoom today, are going, big whoop, what's the big deal? Well, I, I hear you. But for me, this was a challenge. This was a stretch. God was growing me. And he had, for this season in life, he had set this smartphone outside of his boundaries for me. Well, here's, here's the thing that made it even more difficult. About that time, we were living in Granger at the time. About that time in the University Park Mall, the Apple store opened. Now, anyone who knows me knows that I'm a fan of Apple products. Uh, I love them. I think they're the best thing since sliced bread. And I used to work for Apple for a while. Uh, so when this Apple store opened, I, was, I so desperately wanted to go to the grand opening. I mean, it was, was going to be the event of the decade. I, it was going to be the greatest place to be. But I knew that I couldn't do that. You see, God had, for me, in that season of life, he had placed a smartphone outside of the boundaries that he had for me. And I knew that if I walked into that store filled with, among other things, iPhones, that there would be something inside of me that would churn and that would turn and, and would want to make one of those mine. I knew that it would cross a boundary 
that God had for me. So I didn't go for a long time, almost too long, to the Apple store. Now, get this. Sometimes the lust of the eyes strikes at what we might call universal boundaries. So, for example, when you're married, every other person on the face of the earth is outside of God's boundaries for you to think about in certain ways. They are not yours. You're not to enter into that kind of intimate relationship with them. It's a universal boundary. Marriage is one of those boundaries. Uh, if you're a teenager, for example, and, and uh, your coworker or teammate or the person in the locker next to you has, you know, a great pair of, I don't know, earbuds that, that you like and you want to make them yours, it is always wrong to take those. That's a universal boundary. We don't take things that belong to other people. Sometimes, though, the lust of the eyes isn't about universal boundaries. It's, it's about boundaries that God has set for you in your growth and your development. That's where I was with the smartphone deal. That was a boundary that God had set for me. And, and, and if I was going to follow God and grow the way that he wanted to, I couldn't step outside of that boundary. Um, you know, if your parents, teenagers, have told you that a certain article of clothing or style of clothing is uh, that you're not permitted to wear it, you begin to tempt, you begin to give in to the lust of the eyes if you, you know, surf the internet, imagining how you'd look in that, in that piece of clothing, or if you use virtual reality to virtually try on the clothing, you're tempting <clears throat> the eyes, you're giving in to the lust of the eyes because you're moving towards or outside of a boundary that God has set for you. So Adam and Eve are tempted first by the lust of the flesh, second by the lust of the eyes. And then notice the third temptation we encounter in Genesis chapter 3. It's, it's the pride of life. They're tempted by the pride of life. Moses writes that when Eve saw the fruit, she saw that it was desirable for gaining wisdom. Most specifically for Eve, what she encountered were those words that I had you circle as we read Genesis chapter 3. She was encountered with this desire, this overwhelming urge to make herself like God, to replace God's role in her life with herself. That's why we define the pride of life as a desire to be like God apart from God. The pride of life is the desire to be like God apart from God. Now that's significant because one of the goals of the Christian life is to become like our heavenly father. That's why Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, be perfect therefore as your heavenly father is perfect because the goal for us is to continue to strive for Christ's likeness, continue to strive to become like our heavenly father. The problem comes when we do it in ways that are not like him, that are not like his character, that, that replace his role in our life so that we can fill it however we want. Let me just share some examples. The, the desire to get credit or glory for something someone else did or, or something that even God did, uh, that demonstrates the pride of life. The, the desire for others to, to worship us or to hold us in high esteem, that's a role for only God. Only God is to be worshiped the desire to make a name for ourselves, the desire to feel more valued or more important than other people, the, the desire to have positions of power over others in a way that, that puffs up our own ego. 
instead of using that power to serve those with less power, the desire for recognition, for applause, for status. These things are demonstrations or evidence that the pride of life is one of the temptations that's battering our soul. Think of it like this. Have you ever been maybe like at the 4-H fair or in a fun house or maybe even a museum? Have you ever been in one of those mirror fun houses where you're completely surrounded by mirrors and you know they're positioned different ways so that no matter which way you look, it's only yourself you see. And if you look the right way, you see like you reflected on you, reflected on you. You know what I'm saying? Like everywhere you look is, is me, 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 me. This is how the pride of life often looks. When I look at my life, when I look at what I want, when I consider where I'm going, it's not God and his will and his desires that I see. It's me and my will and my desires. So here we have these three temptations, the, uh, the temptations themselves, not necessarily wrong, but the first step or, or maybe the last step into these acts that lead to death. We see these three temptations pop up all over the place in scripture, not always all three at the same time, but, uh, but we see evidence of all three throughout the pages of scripture. But there are a couple of times where the three appear together. Let me just draw your attention to those real quick. First of all, uh, you'll notice in Matthew chapter four that Jesus encounters all three temptations in the same event or at the same time. Notice Matthew chapter four, verse three. It says, the tempter came to Jesus and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. So this is the lust of the flesh. He wants to, the, Satan is encouraging him to satisfy his hunger. He's been fasting for 40 days to satisfy his hunger in a way that isn't God approved. God has put that outside of a boundary for now. But Satan says, go ahead, you have the power, turn these stones to bread. That's the lust of the flesh. Dump down a few, jump down a few verses to um, eight and nine in chapter four of Matthew. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all of their splendor. All of this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. This is the, the lust of the eyes, the desire to have something that you see, even though it's outside of God's boundaries. Now, we know the end of the story. We've read, for example, Philippians 2 in the book of Revelation. We know that there is coming a day when all of the kingdoms of the earth will bow down and proclaim that Jesus is Lord, but that wasn't for this time. And so when Satan tempts him, he's, he's appealing to the lust of the eyes. Notice Matthew chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. And the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. This is the pride of life. It's a temptation to do things my way. In this case, it's a temptation to manipulate the angels, to, to get them to do um, you know, what Scripture says is God's bidding, to protect them, to protect us, but to do it on my timetable, to do it the way that I want. And if we look uh, later in the New Testament, in, in the book of 1 John, in 1 John chapter 2, we see these three temptations mentioned again. Listen as I read from 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in this world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. 
Now catch this. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Don't miss that, beloved. The world and its desires pass away. That's John's way of saying that the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and and the pride of life, they lead to death. They don't lead you anywhere that you want to go. Always only to death. And this is what we see that Adam and Eve experienced after they ate the fruit that they weren't supposed to. We're going back to Genesis chapter 3. Follow along as I read, starting in verse 7, and we're going to see how how death starts to pile up on Adam and Eve because they gave into these temptations and engaged in acts that lead to death. Verse 7, Genesis chapter 3. After they'd eaten, the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. Just like that, the death of innocence. They had no idea before they ate. from the tree that they weren't supposed to, that they were naked. They had no idea that things were showing that now they don't want showing. When they sinned, their eyes were open and their innocence was snuffed out just like that. Notice verse eight, and the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day and they hid from the Lord God. This is the death of relationship. Because they sinned, because they engaged in acts that lead to death, their perfect relationship with their heavenly father was forever altered. And not just for them, but for all of us too. Now, we, again, we know the rest of the story. We see throughout scripture, even by the end of chapter three, how God is reaching out, constantly reaching out to us, constantly making a way that we can be in relationship with him. But the perfection of that relationship is forever dead, or at least forever as long as this earth spins. Jump down to verse 10. Adam answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And again, do you just kind of see death piling on death? Piling on death here, it's, it's uh, you know, because their innocence was killed and because their perfect relationship with their heavenly father was killed. Their confidence was gone. Adam says, I was afraid. I was afraid of you. Man, the death of confidence is brutal. We still experience that all over the place in relationships today. Notice verse 12. The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some of the fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate it. I refer to this as the death of maturity. You see, one of the hallmarks for maturity is the ability to own your mistakes, the ability to say, I messed up, I did wrong, I misstepped. And they lose that here. Instead of maturity, instead of looking at their heavenly father and saying, we've done wrong, they both blame the other. What's up with that? Notice verse 16 and follow along as I read a few verses. To the woman, God said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. 
by the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food. And I, I would say it maybe like this, that their act of going outside of God's boundaries for them, it brought death to the ideal. Now everything would be painful and difficult. Perfection was gone. It was set aside. We know the end of the story. It'll, it'll return. But in the meantime, the ideal is gone. Everything's hard. Everything's difficult. Everything hurts. Notice the last part of verse 19. Until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you'll return. It's like we're on a, a, a highway that has death stacked up all around it, and the destination of that highway is physical death itself. And not just physical death we know from the rest of Scripture, but spiritual death, living out an eternity separated forever from God. But first we have to endure, deal with physical death here in this life. Every act that moves us outside of the will of God, anytime we think or we say or we do something that it's, that's outside of God's will for us or, or that seeks to replace God's will and desires for us with my own will and my own desires, that's when we've committed an act that leads to death. This is one of the most elementary, fundamental, basic understandings of the Christian faith of living as a follower of Jesus Christ. Every person lives like this from birth. We are born into death and we have no way of escaping except by death. And so we can either go on living the way that we want according to our own rules and desires, satisfying the, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the, the pride of life. We can follow the highway that's stacked with death and leads to death. Or we could take inventory. We can acknowledge, I'm on the highway of death here. This isn't going where I want it to go. We can ask God for his forgiveness and we can start walking on a different path. But listen, the only reason that we can do that, the only reason that we can ask God for forgiveness and that we could step off of the highway of death and onto the path of life is because of Jesus' death. Because God took on flesh, became a human being, and said, I am going to deal with death once and for all. And he who knew no sin, Scripture says, he became sin so that we who don't know righteousness so that we could become the righteousness of God. So how do we do that? How do we, how do we accept Jesus' death in our place so that we can step off of the highway of death and onto the path of life? That thing is called repentance. That action is called repentance. Repentance means to turn away and to walk in the other direction. Repentance means to turn away and to walk in the other direction. I'm going to go differently, live differently, behave differently than I was behaving while I was engaging in acts that lead to death. Now, some of you watching today, I don't, I don't know what brought you to this live stream today, but some of you watching today, this may be the step you need to take. You may need to look, look around at your life and realize that you have been living as if you 
are God. You've been a God unto yourself. And, and, and maybe you need to take inventory and ask, have I really been a good God for myself? Is my life really what I hoped it would be? And if the Spirit leads you, the Holy Spirit leads you, and you take inventory and you go, you know what? I, I don't like this highway that I'm on. It's riddled with death and destruction, and that's where it's going to end if something doesn't change. Then for you, the step is, let's call it big R repentance, where you would say to God, God, I've mucked up my life big time. And I need that forgiveness that Jesus Christ offers. I need his death to replace the death that's stacking up around me. And the good news is if you do that, if you confess that you need Jesus, if you acknowledge that in his death you can find your life, you'll be forgiven. You'll become a child of God. He'll pick you up off the highway of death and he'll set you on the path of life. And that's the first step of repentance that all of us who are following Jesus Christ, that we call it big R repentance because that's what we all do. We all share that in common as followers of Jesus Christ. We made a decision to turn our back on our old life and to allow God to put us on the path of life. And, and we now strive to live like God wants us to live. But, but that's where um, repentance continues to play a role. You see, there's the, there's the first big step, but then there's countless smaller steps of repentance along the Christian life. Let's call it little r repentance. It's when we acknowledge Although we're trying to walk the way that God wants us to walk, although we're trying to live in a way that pleases him, although we're trying not to give in to the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, we still do. We still mess up. We still make mistakes. And so little our repentance is the ability to say, I was wrong. I'm sorry, Father. Would you please forgive me? And then to turn away from that action, from that behavior, and to walk in the direction God wants us to walk. So what does it mean? What does it look like as a follower of Christ? What does it look like to repent? How do we, how do, we do that? What are the steps we take to, to repent from the acts that leads to death, as the writer of Hebrews talks about it? Let me just give you three suggestions from the texts we've read today. These aren't uh, an exhaustive list, but based on the verses we've read today, three suggestions. First of all, if I'm going to repent I've got to own my own sin. I've got to own my own sin. We saw this in Genesis chapter 3 in verses 12 and 13. God comes to the garden. He confronts Adam and Eve. And, and what do they both do? They deny that it was their fault. It's the woman's fault. It's the serpent's fault. It's like the, the blame just went down the chain. But if we're going to turn away from acts that lead to death, if we're going to repent of those and live in a way that pleases God, we have got to admit that we fall and pray to these things. You cannot turn away from a sinful act until you confess that you're facing it. You won't find freedom from whatever has you in chains until you acknowledge that it's got you in bondage. You can't escape until you confess that something has you in the grip. You're not going to stop doing something until you admit that you're doing it. When I was a, a young pastor, I uh, was a youth pastor out at a small country church in Napanee, Indiana. Oak Grove Missionary was the name of the church. I, I think it still stands. I, I believe it does. I believe they're still meeting. 
one particular morning, my, my, uh, the senior pastor, my boss came in and, and he said to me on this Sunday morning, he said, when you do welcome announcements today, uh, feel free to draw people's attention to the new church sign that's in the yard, but don't mention who made it. Don't mention who it came from. There was a man in the congregation who um, was able to, you know, with his employer's permission to leverage the tools and the stuff and the supplies at the place where he worked. And he crafted a new sign for the church, a gorgeous sign but he didn't really want anyone to know that he had done it. He didn't want to draw attention to his company or, or to him. So my senior pastor, my boss just said, you're welcome to mention the sign, but don't mention who did it. Well, I was a little, you know, well, not little, but I was a, you know, early 20 some year old, um, just out of college, just finishing college student. And I thought, you know, that's not really that scriptural. Romans is pretty clear. We are to give honor to whom honor is due. So when I stood up that morning to do the welcome announcements, not only did I draw people's attention to the sign, not only did I mention who had made it, but I had that man stand up and I had everyone turn around and look at him and clap for him. Monday morning, or, or maybe it was Tuesday, I came into the office and uh, uh, my boss, a senior pastor, called me into his office and he shut the door and he sat me down across the desk from him. He said, let's talk about what you did on Sunday. And I put up my best defense. Oh, I, what I was doing was scriptural. You know, we're supposed to honor those to whom honor is due. It's no big deal. People, did you see the way people responded? They appreciated it. It's, not, it's no big deal. And my, my boss, my senior pastor, he, he looked across the desk at me and he said, Earl, what bothers me isn't just the fact that you, you ignored a direct order from me, but it's the fact that you sit here and you make excuses. You won't own that you've done wrong, and you did wrong. Now, this isn't a fireable offense. I'm not going to fire you for this, but Earl, I want you to know I have serious concerns for your walk with the Lord. You cannot walk with the Lord the way that he wants you to if you're unable to acknowledge that you've done wrong. Friends, the first step of repentance is to admit that you messed up, whether you meant to or not. You've got to own your stuff. Secondly, let me, uh, let me suggest we see in Matthew chapter 4 that another step to repentance is to lean on Scripture, to lean on Scripture. Actually, this is a step that, that um, gets us turned away from where we shouldn't be going and heading the right direction, but hopefully before we ever do anything in this direction that we shouldn't be doing. We see this again in the example of Jesus. We read the temptations earlier, how he was tempted with all three of these things. And every time when Satan brought a temptation, how did Jesus respond? He spoke truth to the lie by quoting scripture. He spoke the truth of God's word into the darkness of the temptation. As we've been on this uh, stay-at-home order from the governor of Indiana, I've been uh, having conversations with the, you know, a number of people in our church. And, and one particular conversation stands out to me. It's a, a person in our congregation who uh, shared that in some struggles they're having, they've learned to memorize scripture. And so they set out, I don't remember if it was every day or every week, to memorize more scripture, just to hide it away in their heart. You know, sometimes they look up things that are topical that pertain to what they're struggling with. And, and sometimes it's just the, the, the act of memorizing scripture and then bringing it to mind throughout the day to, you know, to repeating it and to, to doing what it takes to commit a verse to memory. And they've found freedom and life and help and support 
in that. And I said to that person as, as we were communicating over email, what a challenge that was to me. Because that's a discipline in my own life that I haven't been as intentional with in this past season as I have in other seasons. And, and perhaps that's the same for you. Perhaps you could say, you know, I used to memorize scripture like mad but I haven't really in a long time. I want to invite you, if that's you, if you'd like to join me in memorizing scripture, send me an email and, or put it on the connection form. Let me know that you'd like to do that. And, and together we'll work to memorize scripture, to hold each other accountable, to help each other you know, memorize and, and figure out how we can continue to hide God's word in our heart. But there's no better way to head in the right direction than to keep God's word plant it in your heart and mind and to bring it up and to speak it when you need it. Let me give you one more, one more idea for how to repent from acts that leads to, lead to death. This comes right out, of, right out of scripture in 1 John chapter 2, verse 17. Do the will of God. Again, we read this verse. John says, the world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. The only way to truly repent and to avoid the acts that lead to death is to live in a way that pleases God. That's what repentance is. That's the direction it gets us heading, and that's the only way to do it, to do the will of God. Strive to take every thought captive and make it obedient to Jesus Christ. Guard your tongue so that it speaks only what is useful for building others up, only what is glorifying to God, only what edifies others. Make sure that every action reflects who God is and how he wants you to live. Now, here's the rub with all this. It's impossible to do that. It is impossible to live a life where every thought, every word, every action is always glorifying to God, no exceptions. We can't do that on our own. We can't live that perfectly. That's the standard that God has set for us, but we can never get there. It's like swimming from California to Hawaii. It ain't never going to happen. That's where faith comes in. And next week, what we want to do is we continue to go back to the basics is we want to look at the second elementary truth, the fundamental of the faith that the writer of Hebrew mentions in chapter six, verse one. We want to talk about faith in God. You see, that's the only way that we can live like this. That's the only way that we can live a life that pleases God. And so I hope you'll join us next week as we continue to go back to the basics to understand what it means to live a life that allows us to keep maturing in our walk with Jesus. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Father, we thank you for the examples of those who have gone before us, like Adam and Eve, who were tempted in the same way that we are tempted. And although we're not thankful for the choice they made, we're thankful for the way it instructs us and, and the caution flags that it gives us. Father, we're also thankful for, for the one, for Jesus Christ, who, who was tempted the same way that we are and, and uh, who didn't give in, who demonstrated that it is possible to live in a way that's pleasing to God. And so, Father, would you help each of us, wherever we need to repent, wherever we need to, to turn our back or to turn away from something and move in a different direction, to live in a different way, would, would your spirit help us to see that? Would you put your finger on that? And, and in your tender mercy, 
Would you help us to own it? And then would you help us by your spirit to live in a way that pleases you? Father, we thank you that this thing isn't hopeless, that although we can never live perfectly, that your mercy and your grace fills in the gaps and forgives us and helps us to walk in your direction. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.